Hey, my name is Vitaly Klopot, and this is the Business of Education podcast, the podcast for higher education professionals looking for insights in the business of education. Each episode, I will be attempting to bridge the gap between business, marketing, education technology, and social impact through conversations with guests and friends. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dan Summer. Dan is the founder and former chief exec of Trilogy Education, the world's leading workforce accelerator. Since its launch in 2015, Trilogy has been empowering over 50 top universities to upskill over 20,000 working adults in high demand tech fields and closing the digital skills gap for over 2,000 companies globally. Trilogy was bought by 2U, a large OPM provider, in April 2018 for a reported $750 million. Prior to founding Trilogy, Dan served as Zeet Interactive's president of global education, where he led the company's growth and expansion within the education sector. And prior to Zeta, Dan served as chief exec and chairman of Study Interactive, which is where me and him crossed paths. Dan Summer, thank you for taking the time and um, really, really appreciate you being here. Great to be here, Vitaly. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Um, I thought we could start by uh, a quick intro to yourself, if you don't mind. Um, and, and I think most people would know you as the founder and former CEO of Trilogy, although you've had quite a big um, array of ventures previously. So I'd love to just kind of get a high level overview um, of, of your career and what you've done so far, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Uh, so Dan Summer, great to be here. Uh, I live currently in New York City uh, with my family, uh, two boys. Uh, I spent a lot of time between uh, New York and upstate New York. Uh, and I actually happen to grow up in upstate New York. So it's kind of kind of cool to be kind of back and forth between the two, uh, kind of understanding the, the culture of upstate New York. Um, and, you know, I'd say that w- when I think about my career, if I were to kind of paraphrase maybe a bit and the two things that I love most that have been drivers for me, uh, I love education and I love entrepreneurship. And I spent most of my career figuring out, not realizing always that I was figuring it out, but when I reflect on it, figuring out how to merge the two how to merge education and entrepreneurship uh, to create, you know, kind of a life uh, in a career that I would enjoy. So, you know, maybe I'll spend a minute going into each one to kind of, kind of recap uh, my experience, but entrepreneurship. So it's interesting. I didn't grow up with it. You know, I grew up in a house uh, with a father who was a lawyer, a mother was a speech therapist and uh, didn't have a lot of entrepreneurs around. You were, you were, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist. You um, maybe you were an accountant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, entrepreneurship was not something we talked about. Uh, and I, you know, was able to kind of discover it fairly early. I ran my first uh, company in college. I'm not a lemonade stand entrepreneur at the age of eight, but I did run my first kind of company in college. It was a nonprofit that was set up to teach uh, undergraduates at Cornell uh, how to run businesses. 
and I was just I was just hooked by the idea uh, of running a business instead of listening to my biology class on the hill from a Nobel laureate. I was kind of just hooked by selling, you know, coupons and shipping and storage businesses and things of that nature to students. But I'll tell you that that was the hook for me when I was able to run my own business as a college student. And it gave me a great desire and drive to be an entrepreneur, you know, and that really became a driving force, I think, in my career. Um, I worked for entrepreneurs. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was lucky to have great mentors along the way. And through that process, you know, I started about eight companies, actually. Uh, I've started about eight companies, including a nonprofit. I've, I've had exits either as an investor, an advisor, or a CEO and founder of about six companies. And still, some are kind of active and running. So uh, entrepreneurship has always been part of my DNA. Second, education. So I grew up in a house with a father who was a State University of New York trustee. So we grew up around a dinner table talking about education on a regular basis. Um, and, and that was kind of, core, uh, kind of a core conversation. And, and I remember uh, as in my entrepreneurial journey, I started a marketing agency. And one of my first clients was an online for-profit school. And I ended up going to a conference of educators and sitting in the bar one night and talking to some CEOs and founders of these schools. And it was the first time in my professional life. And it was, I was young, but you know, I was, I don't recall the time was it, 25, 26, maybe mm-hmm. I was young. And I remember thinking to myself, I am finally in the right place. I'm finally in the right room. How do I do that? And it was the first time I was able to see that education was a business. It wasn't just a concept. It wasn't just a mission. It wasn't just about learning. It was, it was a business. And I wanted to be around it. And so that was kind of the first time through that company that I kind of learned how to, how to really kind of merge those two things. And then my career went from there. Um, but that, that's really kind of the, you know, I was fortunate to to find those two concepts and merge them and create a career based on the, the, the tight connection between education and entrepreneurship. Dan, just to digress a second, and you mentioned the business of education. Um, one of the challenges and, and certainly the interesting aspects that I see having uh, predominantly spent most of my professional career in the UK and in, in, in higher education space in the UK the concept of business of education, sorry, being a business is actually contested, unlike the US. If, if, and looking from the outside in, I would say so. You, you really have a very different um, kind of idea and culture in the US versus the UK around education as a business. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So, so generally, in my mind, the states have done a much better job at demystifying and accepting that you can do good for students and you can also do uh, good from a capital, uh, kind of a, a capital, pure capitalism kind of business perspective. Um, but the UK doesn't seem able to bridge that gap as of yet. Any kind of... Um, advice or, or, or things that you've noticed on that? 
Well, look, you know, my, my framing has kind of always been, uh, who is your customer? Mm-hmm. And I know that's business jargon, mm-hmm. but who's your customer? So there are students out there in the world that um, their biggest achievement would be to graduate from college or to get an education or they're the first in their family. That's a major driver. There are students out there that want to be promoted and want to be successful in business and want to get the next job. And that's their objective. And I think institutions that deliver on student needs that create another business term, an ROI, a return on investment for students. And I think that's a critical factor. Sometimes I think education gets uh, too expensive relative to the potential returns for students. But if you can create a good value proposition, then I don't believe tax status matters. Right. If you're creating ROI, then whether you're a for-profit or a nonprofit, um, you know, I, I I don't think that matters. Now, what sometimes happens if you don't have the right, let's call it ethical compass, uh, and you're more motivated by the commercial aspects than in delivering value for your customers, you can go astray. Nonprofits have done it, and for-profits have done it. So I think that what's most important is that you kind of understand your customer, you've got good values, you try to deliver value and ROI to your to your students. Uh, and you have kind of a board that holds you to account that, you know, is always monitoring kind of the value that you're delivering. And then again, I think there are great for-profit institutions and great nonprofit institutions that are delivering value. So I don't believe ultimately it's, it really has anything to do with tax status. Mm -hmm. It really has to do with that ethos. From a media buying perspective, and you mentioned um, institutions needing to find their place. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts around the arbitrage and the product market fit. So I'm seeing a lot of institutions who are not accepting their place in a specific market and in a specific segment today. They might have aspirations to be something bigger and something different to what they are today. Um, but from a media buying perspective, which you know is something that I, I, I'd really love to get your kind of deep insight on and, and, and certainly having looked at your background, something that you've spent a lot of time doing, um, you, you end up seeing a lot of institutions buying business, buying um, and trying to attract inquiries, um, and and from a non-commercial point of view, trying to buy their way into the market. Um, I think you know, I'd be interested to hear your views around finding that balance, finding that product market fit, and knowing the right balance between um, media acquisition, um, lead gen versus actually recognizing who you are as an institution and trusting the more organic, um, uh, traditional um, approaches to getting a product out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think that I've always been a, an advocate of, of 
of really doing the work to find product market fit. Uh, because I think once you understand your customer and understand the need and what you're delivering and what your objectives are, then, you know, it, it's easier to develop a, a plan, right? Mm-hmm. To acquire that customer and serve the customer well. So, you know, I think that sometimes when people think about the nonprofit realm, they, they, they don't apply the same tools that you would in a more commercial for-profit realm of, of, of targeting and, you know, and, and positioning. Uh, and so I, I, w- what I think is that, you know, an institution has to find its way first by finding the right target, by accomplishing product market fit, by understanding why they're good at what they deliver, and then looking for ways to expand with that insight. And it's amazing that when you do those things well, uh, you can find greater efficiencies in your marketing spend. You Mm -hmm. can find greater efficiencies in your conversion rates. You can get your total cost of student acquisition down. It's when you're doing, trying to be too many things to too many people that you tend to run into challenges and potentially overspend from a media perspective. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up in, in, in marketing. I think the first third of my career was, was, was really mm-hmm. spent in, in digital media and in, in, in marketing. And, and I found that, you know, the education sector, uh, ultimately serving, you know, lots of different institutions from a marketing perspective. I'll, I'll be the first to say that it's been a while since I've been looking at, you know, uh, you know, running marketing campaigns, certainly, but, 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 and I've been fortunate to find great people and collaborate with great people who are incredible marketers who really kind of understand, uh, the new media and what's possible and how to target demographics and how to test and find the right value proposition and how to really drill into the right metrics and KPIs. So, you know, that you're delivering, uh, but, you know, ultimately I would say that, uh, from my perspective, starting tight and understanding that value proposition and finding product market fit and then finding ways to expand from there is vital. When I started, when I built Trilogy uh, with a phenomenal team, uh, we really, we had the insight that um, that building coding boot camps, there are so many uh, boot camps out there. But we believed wholeheartedly that universities should be playing a bigger role in in skills-based education. And that if we could leverage uh, the brands uh, and the academic oversight of some of the world's best universities, and we could find an audience that would respect that traditional brand and Mm want to be affiliated with that traditional brand, and create a product that met the needs of that customer, then if we combine those things, we could find great efficiency from a customer acquisition perspective. And by being that focused and that laser-like kind of targeted, we were able to do so when we were able to acquire uh, students into our programs efficiently. And we didn't expand into other areas until we really kind of understood our target demographic and understood our market and understood how to reach them. I think we would have made a lot of mistakes in building the business had we uh, had we developed an ego around our ability to bring in new customers. Had we had we gone too big too fast, had we 
grown in areas outside of our core, I think it would have led to challenges. So I, I, I agree with you that um, product market fit, knowing your customer, being very targeted yields greater efficiency. And then you can leverage that efficiency as you think about in your knowledge of the market and target to kind of expand your approach. So I, so I followed um, Trilogy's process um, and progress um, over the years. Um, we've known each other for some time. Where do you think the bootcamp space is heading? Um, and do you think there are nuances and differences, again, between the U.S. and outside of the U.S. from that perspective? Well, there, you know, there's a tremendous skills gap, which remains even today with the economic circumstances that we're uh, looking at. Uh, and when we started Trilogy, there was the notion of over a million open positions in, in web development and software development in only about 60,000 uh, computer science graduates in the U.S. It was a huge gap, and boot camps were rushing in. I think by the time we started Trilogy in 2015, uh, we in our first class uh, was was October 2015 with our first class at Rutgers University. There were probably 300 boot camps in the U.S. alone, uh, and ranging from small players where you'd have a great engineer that wanted to teach uh, to larger players like General Assembly in mm-hmm. uh, Iron Yard uh, at the time, and so. Uh, what we our insight kind of coming into the market was was really twofold. So we believe that great brands, and I'd always joke, you'd have all these brands, three hundred brands uh, that were trying to create their own way as alternatives to college and university. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I, you know, I said, you know how long it you know it takes to 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 build a two hundred fifty year old brand? No, how long? 250 years. Rutgers <laughs> University around 250 years was our first partner. And if you're in central New Jersey and uh, you're a resident of the state of New Jersey and you're thinking about where do I want to learn these skills, um, many people would say go to a general assembly or go to another provider. We said um, go to Rutgers. And Rutgers saw that vision. And they were able to uh, provide that oversight. And we established an incredible uh, relationship and partnership with them, which then was able to expand. And we can kind of talk all about the growth and, and of Trilogy, uh, et cetera. But more directly to your, to your point, there's a huge market. There's, there's growing demand for individuals that have these skills. Um, my belief, and I remember in 2015, and I was quite wrong, I said by 2020, uh, there won't be any standalone coding boot camps. There will only be universities teaching these skills. And that, that was wrong. There are lots of standalone coding boot camps still, and that's wonderful. But I do believe in the work that we did in partnering with 50 universities and 55 cities uh, in seven countries, uh, uh, really empowering universities to offer these types of programs. Boot camps have become the fastest growing uh, kind of sector of partnerships between public and private institutions, Mm -hmm. uh, faster growing than pathways and OPMs and other uh, partnership models. So we were on the right track. And I think we really helped to kind of establish that. We showed that students do want to go to their universities 
to develop these skills. Uh, and uh, we played, we certainly proudly played a role in that process. And I don't think that's going away. Look, I, I think more and more institutions will have skills-based education, will offer boot camps. But I also think because of the question you asked before, for-profit, non-profit, understanding your value proposition and the role you play, product market fit, there's still room out there for great uh, boot camp providers that are understanding how to deliver value for customers, meaning understand how to help people to get the skills so that they can enhance their employability. I don't think that's going away. I only think that's going to continue to grow. Are you are you seeing um, a potential impact from the big tech companies on the non-credit space? Um, you, know, you mentioned leveraging existing 250-year-old institutional brands. Um, and I certainly get that. I, I really get why a student would prefer to study um, a vocational skill with an established um, institution, an established brand versus a brand new bootcamp business uh, that was born yesterday that might not be here in a year's time. And I, I genuinely think that a lot, I think, are struggling today and, and will continue to struggle. It's a tough business to crack. Um, but are you... <coughs> Are you seeing a potential impact from the likes of Google, Salesforce, et cetera? There's a lot of talk about them entering into the education space, um, creating an education and a curriculum for their tech stack. Um, how do you think that's going to play out over the next couple of years? I think it's a great thing. I mean, look, I, I think that these companies are leveraging their size and their scale to help people to become more relevant, to develop great skills. You know, one of the concepts we talked a lot about at Trilogy with our deans, and largely we partnered through continuing education groups at universities that had a real, uh, both a commercial lens as well as a, a real sense of, of, of mission and access for their institutions. And we talked about the concept of the 60-year curriculum. Uh, so so students, and one of our, prov one of our provosts actually uh, uh, joked at one point, told a story about how he would collaborate with his institution. And he would say, you know, you can have, you can have six years, just give me the other 54. So, you know, the idea that over the course of your lifetime, you know, from 17, 18 years old on, you have to learn new things, whether it's college or graduate school or a certificate or a boot camp or a short course uh, you're going to have to always learn new things to stay competitive and to advance and to get ahead. And so I just see these companies, whether it's Google or any provider or, you know, a Coursera or you name it, any, any uh, institution that provides the ability for students to kind of learn as they grow uh, and advance in their careers uh, has a role in this ecosystem. So I I'm never kind of a zero-sum game. Oh, my goodness, Google is here, and therefore education is over. I don't believe that. Yeah. There's a lot of students out there with a lot of needs. If you can find an opportunity with the right product market fit to offer programs that help students to get an ROI in advance, there's plenty of room for a lot of players to be involved in that market. I agree. Um, I, I think a lot of people are seeing this as a – um, extension to the idea, 
the trilogy had originally, which is partnering with an existing brand um, that people trust, a consumer brand that people know and 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 love, and certainly that's where the the likes of Google and Salesforce and um, etc. come in. Amazon. Um, I think it's it's there's more to it. So I'm I'm really seeing all of those companies setting up education divisions. They're actively going after partnerships with um, universities um, and beyond just embedding kind of their tech stack into the traditional curriculum, they are, I think, trying to um, get people using their tech stack earlier uh, yeah. in, in their careers and in, in their professions. And, and that's a smart play. Um, the, the, if you're familiar with the curriculum, if you're familiar with the tech stack, if that technology um, you know, the, 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 the skills that you acquire kind of, um, as part of your traditional degree, it's, it's certainly then in the forefront of, of, um, your mind around, well, what do I do after my university? Is there an ecosystem around Salesforce? Is there an ecosystem around Amazon? What kind of jobs exist today, um, that can leverage, uh, the more traditional degree, but then actually take that into a into into some of their large ecosystems. Where, as you said, there's huge amount of unmet skills and unmet kind of uh, jobs. Um, I definitely think smart. the walls are starting to come down. Right, it used to be there's the academic experience yeah. and there's the job experience, and more and more players are kind of starting to come in and say, okay, how do I embed? skills, how do I embed these very employable skills into the traditional coursework and curriculum? And that's a huge area, I think, in ed tech of growth right now, uh, the people that get that right. Uh, because companies are looking for talent. They're looking for great talent. And to the degree that they can kind of get in early and mm -hmm. help people to kind of uh, develop those pathways into employability, uh, while still maintaining, you know, the academic rigor uh, you know, I think those companies will do quite well. Talking about companies, who's exciting you these days? What um, ed tech or, or other education industry companies are you seeing that, um, that are exciting you personally for different reasons? Uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of different uh, uh, businesses right now. Uh, you know, I'm going to start maybe with a, a, an answer or, or a plug for one investment fund that I think is doing excellent research on different categories and frameworks in education. It's called Emerge Education. Um, I became an LP in Emerge and their thought leadership and their research into areas like the notion of a challenger university, of a very targeted concept of creating a new university that meets a specific need in the market um, or a specific target audience need. They've got great thought leadership in, in different categories. I, I encourage anyone who's interested in the business of education uh, and anyone who's interested in getting a broad overview of the different types of businesses that are out there to take a look at the thought leadership from Emerge Education. It's pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Um, so I, I think one of the things that I've always done, uh, certainly in my, in my career, and specifically at Trilogy, is I've always thought about when, as an ed tech entrepreneur, um, there's really a couple of different ways that you collaborate with institutions. You can certainly 
ask an institution to write you a check to license your software, your content, or you can generate uh, uh, tuition dollars for those institutions, right? You could invest in those institutions, much like the OPMs have done Mm -hmm. and what we did at Trilogy. I've always been more inclined and interested in looking at businesses that generate net new uh, income for institutions. Now, you look at the challenges, and I can speak more specifically to the challenges in the U.S. relative to higher education. We're undergoing, you know, this notion, this seismic shift with COVID, right? This acceleration of some of the challenges that... um, I tried tried my best to avoid using that word for the whole episode, but... You, you you failed miserably, Dan. But continue. The word COVID, COVID or the, the C word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think if you you it's it's hard to it's hard to take that context in a conversation about education. That's so relevant in terms of shaping Massively. kind of where we're where we're going. I agree. So you know, I think what, you, you look at some of those the acceleration of some of those shifts. You look at the fact that financial institutions are under a great financial, uh, rather educational institutions are under great financial stress right now. Um, Enrollments are down. Tuition is down. Discount rates are up. Uh, Institutions are letting people go. I think 340,000 jobs in the U.S. were lost in higher ed sector since January. International students are down 15% to U.S. institutions. U.S. institutions are hurting. Second, you've got this notion where my children, who are young, are studying online in remote learning because of the pandemic. Uh, first-year students in college are studying online. Remote isn't going anywhere. Online isn't going anywhere. If anything, it's going to be baked into our educational system going forward. Mm-hmm. It's not on the fringes by any stretch. And then you've got the idea that people are questioning the value proposition of, of higher ed. Uh, so there's intense pressure right now on the system. And so when I think about companies that are positioned for success, I'm looking at companies that are solving those problems, right? I'm looking at companies that actually can bring more revenue into institutions that aren't asking financially struggling institutions to write a check, but are saying, I can help you to leverage what you've got to create more opportunity. Uh, those are the companies that I'm, I'm super interested in at is, this point. Is, is brand now more important than ever? Do you think? What, what's yeah, the think- what's the quickest? What's the lowest hanging fruit for a struggling institution? It, it, it's obviously a yeah. It, it's tough. You've got to figure out where you know what battle to fight. What do you approach and what do you tackle first? You've got uh, kind of the the typical traditional student who struggles to really understand the difference and the nuance between institutions. They're much of the same. Everybody's now online. Um, Apart from the geographical aspect, uh, which is gone uh, with COVID, um, you know, what are the true differentiators? How do you genuinely stand out? Is there now a bigger task for the comms teams and the brand teams to do, to do more? I think brand uh, is certainly critical. Uh, Either you need to kind of, you're differentiating on, on product, Right. So in other words, maybe you're bringing in industry in a new way into classroom or corporate relationships in a new way, uh, or you're creating a new format that has compelling features like the bootcamp format, right, which is what we focused on at Trilogy. Um, 
or you're leveraging one of the great brands. Um, I think the, the institutions that don't have those elements are the ones that are going to struggle and the ones that may not survive, you know, the current situation. Um, but I spoke to an institution the other day that uh, is New York based uh, and uh, a smaller institution that is not high in the rankings. And they know that they can sell a location, New York, and they know that they've got deep connections within the financial industry so they can sell kind of internships and access to industry. So you've got to know yourself and know uh, what you have. And that's what, you know, ultimately you're going to leverage in your, in your marketing message. It's tough though, for institutions that don't have the brand that don't have the location. Those are the ones that are going to struggle. Just putting another online degree uh, is, 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 uh, you know, online is is challenging in and of itself so the world doesn't need another online degree the world doesn't need just another online degree it's what are you doing that's different so i think you know certainly the 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 top 50 universities the top 100 universities in the u.s are the ones who are going to fare best through all this because they can rely on their networks and their brand and their access um it's really the institutions below that will probably struggle a little bit, a little bit more. So I think that creates an opportunity for entrepreneurs to come along and to find new ways for those types of institutions to differentiate themselves and, uh, and, and capture some opportunity that's clearly out there. So relationships with corporates are really probably more important than ever. Um, well, I think that Right now, only about 20% of college graduates feel good about their job prospects after they graduate uh, was a statistic I just came across. And, and that's telling, right? So if, if I'm going to spend, in the US right now, private institutions are $50,000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I have the potential to take on $200,000 worth of debt. Um, that, you know, that's a, that's a big figure. And that could cripple me for many, many, many years and even decades. So I'm thinking, how do I get the best ROI possible for my education? And the only way to get your the best ROI is to have some outcome associated with it. So institutions that can help me through network, through access, through support to achieve more, uh, you know, and that's oftentimes with employability in mind, uh, that's going to be a more compelling offering to me than, you know, someone that doesn't have that value proposition. Mm. Um, Just conscious of time, Dan, I want to talk about two things and then I'll let you go. Um, One of the interesting conversations in the UK at the moment is around switching universities. Um, So the idea, there was um, a stat that I came across recently where 30% of students um, wish they had the opportunity and means to switch an institution after their first year of an undergraduate course in the UK. So a ton of people that join for whatever reason, and that could be, you know, with COVID again, a, a million and one things that could be family related, financial, et cetera, et cetera, want to switch to another institutions. Now, from my experience in the US, the notion that somebody starts a degree and might not finish the the, the, and and complete the award and graduate is absolutely normal. Yet in the UK, it's the the idea that, you know, 
in fact, you know, the sector causes students withdrawals. Uh, it's it's this whole idea of um, it's seen as a failure. It's seen as something that uh, an inefficiency from an institution point of view to get the journey, the student journey right. Uh, it's an inefficiency from a career advice perspective. So maybe the student didn't, didn't start on the program that they um, should have in the first place. So again, it's different worlds in the US and the UK uh, around um, recognition of prior learning, carrying that in a virtual suitcase with you into another institution, um, what you can do with that. And it struck me that, and I was thinking about it and talking to some of my colleagues, the reason it hasn't really happened in the UK, uh, and, and I'd love to kind of get your insight on both the UK and the US perspective, is that the economics just don't work. So it works from a student perspective. Students would love it. Students do not, will, will certainly benefit from um, being able to switch institutions whenever they'd like. That recognition of prior learning and curriculum um, and then, you know, for whatever reason, if you're shooting above your weight and you're doing better than you thought you would and you can take your year one learning and move to a better placed, higher ranked institution for year two and maybe eventual graduation, um, that works well for the students. However, you've got some sunk cost as a university in acquiring the students in the first place and you wanna go, you, you're going to want to keep them for as long as possible. And so letting students leave or switch is against your interest. How do you marry the two concepts? Good for the students, bad for the sector. Any ideas and kind of insights into that? Well, you know, in the US, about 2.8 million students a year transfer institutions. Uh, it's a significant uh, number relative to the overall base, right? And so... Clearly, uh, there's a gap. Clearly, uh, students that enter higher education, maybe they don't have the guidance that they need to pick the right institution, or they don't have the discovery tools that they need uh, to pick the right major, or uh, they don't have a process to really kind of flush all of this out and think it through. So what it creates a scenario where, or financial difficulties come about and you start in one institution mm -hmm. and you ultimately go to another institution. I think in the U S it's very common to go to a community college and then transfer into a four-year institution from there to complete your degree. Um, I think you're right that in that most institutions don't, uh, don't see that as a, um, as an opportunity, right. But there are institutions that do. So one of the great uh, institutions that I think really understands that is an Orlando-based institution called UCF, uh, University of Central Florida. And they've got what's called the Direct Connect program, where they've partnered locally with uh, several community colleges. And they have almost the greatest number of transfer students than any other institution uh, in the U.S., something to the tune of 11 or 12,000 a year for a single institution. Wow. That's a lot. And this direct connect program has been extremely successful because they actually understand that at the end of the day, it's about that student journey. They've collaborated closely with their community colleges to establish partnerships. They've said, it's okay if we take two years 
of that student, if we can help the student's overall affordability picture uh, work. And we are also creating a pipeline uh, into our institution, which can pay dividends in the long term. So I think there are, uh, there, are, there are institutions that get it. It's just super hard, I think, for, for uh, institutions to accept that, that role, right? That, like most institutions, they want a student from year one, and they want, to, they want their progression rates to continue. But I think what you're pointing out is a tremendous opportunity uh, for institutions to think a little bit differently about how they recruit students, how they help students to discover the right path, how they demonstrate value proposition as to why they're the great destination institution. And that's a real opportunity. And, you know, I'm actually starting a business in that sector right now in exactly that realm right now. That's, you know, a new business that I'm, that I'm building is all about pathways, uh, all about pathways into the right program for that particular student. So is, is that so, focusing um, more on the discovery? Problem. Is that focusing more on the discovery piece or just understanding what your options are? Well, I think that, I think that, um, so let's take the field of STEM as an example. Uh, if you look at STEM graduates, about 42% of degree holders in STEM have transferred. Uh, they've laterally transferred, they were reverse transferred, they, they're concurrently enrolled in multiple institutions. So it's hard to find your footing. 50% of, of STEM students actually don't actually complete the STEM degree. Okay, it's a real challenge. So the idea, how do you help students? Well, you, you help them by providing a tremendous amount of support. You help them by envisioning what a job in STEM might look like. You help them in finding the right destination institution. Um, there are a lot of ways that you can support students through what you've identified as a, a real challenge for completion. And I think the combination of support and network and access can put students in a better position for the long term. So I do think there are opportunities to kind of look at those students in transition and help them to ultimately find the right path to both employability and completion. Awesome. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot and, and, and ask you to name a couple of businesses that you think are going to be big in five years time. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think there are a lot of a lot of interesting ed tech businesses. One of the companies that I've invested in is a company called Verto Education. Uh, Inverto Education is really focused on uh, on the study abroad category. So, students that maybe want to take a gap year or defer their start with an institution can travel throughout the world, uh, get academic credit, and then start. Uh, as a transfer student at a network of great institutions. And so I think that people are starting to question the traditional path in, and they're looking for experiences that can differentiate them. And I think companies like Verto are well positioned to, to, to support those, those shifts and those trends. Um, I've also, I've recently invested in a company, which I'm very excited about uh, uh, called Mentor Collective. And Mentor Collective kind of taps into the insight that students need more support 
uh, from their peers and from others in the institution to get through uh, uh, programs, to get through um, to get through their the work and their studies. So they've managed to partner with over seventy universities uh, throughout the U.S. Uh, to create a mentorship platform, which is actually translating into increased retention rates for those institutions because they're really supporting students through that journey. Uh, so these are companies that are addressing context of the time, real pain points, uh, and, and doing a great job, I think, in that, in that process. Look, I mean, there's so many companies that I'm impressed by. We'd have to probably set up a, a separate <laughs> discussion uh, in that. And I'm looking at a lot of them and, and helping to support a number of them. And, um, but it's a good time to be an ed tech entrepreneur. You know, when, 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 you know, I'm, I'm just in the process of starting a new company. I took several months after selling Trilogy before I started to even contemplate starting another company. I, you know, why, like, it's, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. Like, why do it again? And it just, it's a time right now with the accelerating effects of COVID. Sorry to use the C word twice in this, in this podcast, but um, with COVID uh, a third time, you know, it really is an opportunity to take uh, a complex situation and create clarity. And I think ed tech entrepreneurs right now, uh, it's a great time to help institutions to solve challenges and to help students find clarity and so I can't sit on the sidelines and, you know, I'd encourage people that have, have an inkling and have an idea and who are thinking about starting a business. Like, honestly, now is the time. Now is the time to do it in this sector. Dan, if people have got brilliant ideas or have already got a business up and running and they want to reach out to you, where do they find you? Uh, so I've got... Uh, site up at 10ximpact.co. That's my uh, investment company that I've started with one of my partners from Trilogy. And we are always looking at uh, great ed tech entrepreneurs and companies and looking to invest and support uh, people that are changing the world. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Vitaly. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. For really useful links and references to topics we covered, please check out businessofeducation.co.uk. I really try and go above and beyond connecting what was covered to high quality external resources so you can have some really tangible and actionable quick wins. Please, please, please share this with anybody in the business of education you think this would add value to. And lastly, I'd love to hear your feedback. If you'd like to be on the show yourself or recommend someone, please reach out on LinkedIn on Vitaly Klopot, that's V-I-T-A-L-Y-K-L-O-P-O-T, and write me a note. I'll be sure to get back to you. Thank you.